Good morning, church. If I didn't get to tell you this already, happy new year. Thank you for taking some time to start your new year, what I believe is the right way. If you're hanging out with us online, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for starting out this brand new series with us called Solid Ground. Speaking of solid ground, we talked about and read about and kind of saw a little bit there, stuff about storms. I want to talk to you guys about a storm that happened in 2018. You guys remember 2018? Seems like 75 years ago, doesn't it? So in 2018, on the Gulf Coast, close to around Mexico Beach to Apalachicola, there was a hurricane called Hurricane Michael that hit the shores of Mexico Beach. And previous to the hurricane hitting, uh, there was a group of builders uh, inspired by an owner uh, with a lot of money uh, that said, we want to build a house that can withstand a storm. And so they set out to build a house. And apparently when you build beach houses, you give them names. Uh, And so they gave their beach house this name, the Sand Palace. Doesn't that sound awesome? The Sand Palace. And so they named this house the Sand Palace and they, they built it with this intention. And this was the quote from the builders. We built it to withstand the big one. All right, and so uh, when they built it, that's kind of how they did it. They did it with the super reinforced things. They did it by going extra down deep into the foundation. They spent over 50% more than you would normally have to spend to build that type of house to make sure they built one that could withstand, quote unquote, the big one. I wanna show you the sand palace. All right, so again, you can probably guess which one the sand palace is. It's the one that looks like a house still. Um, So it's built right on the shore. It's about 150 yards from the water there in Mexico Beach. And this is the sand palace. And it was built, again, um, to a T to withstand the big one. Uh, the only thing that was damaged on the house when, when the hurricane hit, and again, the hurricane was cat, cat five winds, cat four winds, big, huge storm cell, big, huge flood that came in through that and everything else. And we actually went down on a fishing trip to Mexico Beach not too long after uh, Hurricane Michael had came through and it was just decimated. Like even um, there's an Air Force base there. Every single building on the Air Force base had structural damage. You know what happened to the Sand Palace? There was a little vanity window on an outside like right where the bathroom was and that broke and that had to be replaced. But everything else for the entire house withstood the big one. I think we have a couple other pictures to show you. So that's kind of up close. Looks like we could go Airbnb it right now, like post hurricane. And then uh, there's a cool one of even, okay, so this is directly behind the sand palace. Even behind the sand palace, that house was somewhat protected. If you remember, it it seems like forever ago, but it really was just a few weeks ago we ended a giant walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount with this exact metaphor by saying a wise builder will build their house down to the firm, solid ground of a foundation. And that house will withstand any storm, including the big one. Now we can come to things like the Sermon on the Mount and we can read through that, uh, that, that parable that Jesus gave us. And we can think that when Jesus is talking about a wise fooler building their, or a wise builder building their house on solid foundation, a foolish builder just kind of building their house on sand, that what we're talking about when it refers to storms, which again, is what both of the builders have in common, right? Both of them face storms. Just because one said, I believe you, Jesus, and I'm gonna obey you, Jesus, that wasn't their get out of storm free card. They still had storms in their life. And so did the one who was foolish. Now we can come to a passage like that and we can go, okay, I get that, Jesus. And so what that means is if I obey your word and I listen to what you're telling me to do, that when bad things happen in my life, the quote unquote storms of a disease, death, depression, debt, um, prodigal kids, when, when life's bad things, life's quote unquote storms happen, I'll be able to make it through. And if I don't believe in you, I'll go through those storms and my life will fall apart. 
And yes, friends, that is actually true. And I do believe that's some of the point that Jesus is trying to make in that parable. But remember, where does he give that parable? He gives it as the final note of the entire sermon. And if we just think that that part of that parable, it's all just about, okay, man, you're gonna make it through the storms of life. If you listen to my words, here's the point I'm trying to make. All of the storms that you will face in life, they point to the ultimate storm. Here's what I mean by that. Every storm that you face in life is either preparing you for or causing you to falsely prepare for the ultimate storm. And that ultimate storm is death. And every storm is a test. And what those storms lead us to and point us to is whether or not our faith has been tested to be true. And so whether it's death, whether it's disease, whether it's depression, all of those storms that we will go to point us towards the ultimate test, which is one day your life will be over. And the father will look at your life and say, well done. You built your life on the foundation of the truth that my son said, and it's gonna withstand the storm of my judgment. Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into rest. Or that judgment day will come And when the storm of God's judgment hits our life and has been built on anything other than hearing, putting faith in, trusting in, and obeying the words of Christ, and then the storm of the judgment of God comes, says, if we did not obey, if we did not believe, if we did not trust in the words of Jesus, then that storm is gonna come. And like Jesus says at the very end of that parable, it will fall with a great crash. So the point he's making in this the point that I'm trying to make to you now as we get ready to dive into this series is you are not living a life. Life isn't something that we live. Everybody under the sound of my voice watching online, you're not living a life, you're building a life. And you're building it on some sort of foundation. It's either on what Jesus said is true about the world, about the Father, and about you and your life, or it's on what you think is true and what you wanna do. And that's why today we're gonna kind of draw a line in the sand that says, for us in this house, we will build our life on the firm foundation of Christ, on his truth and who he is. So I kind of want to take a moment and just pause and pray because I really do think that that hopefully can be kind of what we're launching into, a moment where you draw a line in the sand, where you, like the same builders of the sand palace would say, I want to build a life that can withstand the big one. But if I leave out of here and for some unforeseen crazy circumstance happening and my life is called to be answered of, that I know that I can withstand whatever test may come. And here's, I mean, you may hear all this talk and go like, okay, <clears throat> like, so you're telling me, this is a great way to start off the new year, that life is just one big series of going into a storm, sailing out of a storm, being at smooth sailing for a little while and then going right back into the storm. Why, does that, why is that how God does life? Why is it just storm after peace, after storm, after peace, after storm, after thing? Why is that what God's gotta do? Here's why. You may not know the foundation that you're building your life on already, but you know who does? God, he knows what you may be building your life. And sometimes he'll allow a storm to come into your life to reveal to you what he already knew, that your foundation was on a relationship, a person, a false identity, comfort, security, you name it. And he'll allow a storm to come into our life to blow things up so that it's, it's revealed and we see what actually we were building our life on. And hear me, write this down. A faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. 
You, you don't wanna walk into a cancer diagnosis with a faith that hasn't gone through a storm. You don't wanna walk through a prodigal kid telling you, I don't believe in God anymore without a faith who hasn't gone through some storms. You don't wanna walk through infertility, singleness, depression. Anxiety. You don't wanna walk through those things in this life. Trust me, you don't wanna walk through those with a faith that has not been tested. Because that's a faith that I wouldn't put a whole lot of trust in. And so today, if we come to this end of this Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus says, okay, a wise man or woman will build their life on the firm foundation of my teaching. We're gonna answer and dive into the question of how in the world do we do that? And so my hope and my prayer is that you would commit. Uh, we're gonna walk through this and my hope and my prayer is that you, you'd be here. Um, you commit to, to whether it's watching online, whether it's coming and gathering at some, some other things we're gonna have and we'll talk about in a second or just being here on Sundays to say, okay, I need to know how to withstand the big one. So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna unpack what it looks like as far as step one goes, how to build on solid ground. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I pray today is a day where you'd open our eyes, yeah. You'd open our eyes to be able to see your truth. You'd open our eyes to be able to, uh, to see what truth really is, not, not the version of truth that we're maybe believing in our own mind. Help us, Jesus, to to let go of all the things we may have brought into a moment like this. and Just I let our guard down and let your word minister to us. Let it convict and be truth where it needs to be truth. Let it be grace and salve and healing where it needs to be healing. But Jesus, if nothing else, please don't leave us the same. Don't let us walk out of here the same way we walked in, myself included. In your name, amen. All right, so again, we, we hear Jesus in this whole Sermon on the Mount going, build your life on the firm foundation, okay? So we're gonna answer how in the world do we do that? And so what we're gonna walk through for the next five weeks is we're gonna unpack the acronym of the word SOLID, all right? S-O-L-I-D, I can spell it, yeah, SOLID. All right, so we're gonna walk through this. And this is kind of how this is gonna work. So you kind of get a roadmap, you know kind of where you need to lean in and know, know what you need to be looking forward to. So we're gonna walk through it this way. Uh, first, step one of, of building our house on the firm foundation, S is surrender. Step one in, in building my house upon the firm foundation is I have to surrender to the God who's given me the plan in the first place. All right, next place we're gonna go is the O, that's obeying. I surrender to you, but I'm gonna actually figure out what it means to obey, what you call me to do. The next one is love. Love is right in the middle of any build. And that's why it's right in the middle of this word. So I've got to love, love the way Jesus loved. Do what love would require. Next one is if I'm going to build anything, I have to be intentional. Houses don't get built on firm foundations by accident. You have to scientifically, specifically measure up and know when you hit that firm foundation. You have to measure it up against what God's word says is true. And so we're going to be intentional with the build that we're in. And then last week, I'm really looking forward to this one to uncover some of Satan's lies, is if we're going to build a house on a firm foundation, we have to defend that house. We have to defend that house against an active enemy who seeks to destroy everything that God would build in our life. So today, we're gonna start with step one. We're gonna start with surrender. Now, if we're going, okay, what God has called us to do is to build our house on this firm foundation, we gotta back all the way up and go, why do we exist in the first place? Like if it's, hey, we're gonna build our house on the firm foundation. Why is there a we? Why are you here? 
If that's what he's called us to do, we gotta figure out why, why in the world are we even here to build a house in the first place? And to figure that out, we gotta go all the way back to get God's original intent for my life and for your life and for our life collectively. And we go back there and we find it. We don't have to go very far in the scripture. Go to Genesis chapter one, walk on all the way down to verse 27. We're gonna see why there's a we in the first place. Genesis 1, 27 says this, so God created mankind, that's us, man and woman, in his own image. Big deal, I'm gonna unpack that a lot. In the image of God, he created them, that's us, male and female, he created them. All right, so again, let's unpack what's going on. There's a God, he says, I'm creating them. Here's male and female, and here's the big kicker. He creates them in his image, like him with his character, with his nature. And again, that is unlike anything else in all of creation. Frogs, rivers, oceans, wildebeest, none of those are in his image. They're cool, but they're not in his image. And he creates man and woman in his image. Now, let me just pause right here, a little sidebar. He did not create man in an extra way of his image and then woman in kind of like a, okay, that's kind of his image. No, he created both of them equally to represent and image himself forth to the world. Man and woman equally to image him forth into the world. Now, this is a really, really big deal. What this means is the purpose and call on our life is to, as beings, creating the image and likeness of God, to take that character and nature and image of that very God and reflect that out into the world. It is as if then to the world looking around us, we would say, look at my life, here's what God is like. Now that is kind of terrifying if you really think about it. Because imagine if you took like, you know, there's a home security thing, like a nanny cam, like you set up one of those in your house and people and parents in the room, parents, they see you, they see you parent all week long. And then we sit down and we just watch the video on Friday and the end credits roll. And then it says, and this was what God is like as they look at how you parented all week long. All right, or you at work. You at work, they see your entire work leak. They see what you look at on your phone. They see what you're really doing on those long bathroom breaks. They see all of that. And then at the end of your work week, the credits roll and it says, and this is what God was like. Or you take your bank statement and you roll all the way to the bottom of that thing where all the little fine print is. And then into one little big print and bold and underlined with an exclamation point at the end. And then it says, and this is what God is like. See, that's our, that's, original intent for your life and my life was to be in every situation that we ever go in that people would be able to look at our life and go, okay, they were created in the image and likeness of God. The character and the nature of God is within them. They are created to show the world what God is like. That's why you're here. Now you're going, man, I just wanna put food on the table. I'm just trying to graduate college. I, I, I wanna be an electrician or a plumber or a teacher or a stay-at-home mom, whatever. You have such a higher calling on your life, calling to show people what God is like. To put it in a little bit more uh, neater uh, theological terms, I would say it like this. You were created to be an incarnational, which is a big word there. It just means in the flesh. Like, again, people look around and you're like, where's God? Can't necessarily like pinpoint him. But you were created to be an incarnational in the flesh, key word here, glorifying expression of the nature and character of God. That's why you're here. That's why you exist. Now, it gets better or heavier 
from there. Because not only did this God go, I'm gonna create you in my image to glorify me, to show people, show the world, and then glorify, magnify me, show me who I am to the world around you. But we have verse 28. In verse 28, it says this, but God blessed them, that's man and woman, they're created equally in the image of God. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and so do it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, check this out. God just said, hey, you're creating my image. My character, my nature is inside of you. Now look what he says next. Look at all those things that he writes out in verse 28. They're all ruling and reigning commands. They're all commands that imply I am creating you, not just in my image, but now I'm giving you dominion in this world that I've created you to live and exist in. Now this is big here as far as our implications in life. What that means is God didn't just go, I'm creating you in my image. I'm creating with you my nature and my character and I'm creating you to show me to the world. But that means in this, if, if verse 28 is also true, and I believe it is, that means that God didn't just say, you're creating my image and my nature and my character, but I am also giving you my authority. Dun, dun, dun. I'm giving you authority on this earth to rule, reign, lead, and manage the way I would. So what that means, and again, this is our original intent. You have the image, character, nature of God. And now with that image, character, nature of God, you're also given his authority so that I treat her the way God would treat her. I manage that money the way God would manage that money. I keep my word the way God would keep his word. I steward in love and in care for people. I work at that job the way God would work at that job. I do it the way he would do it because it's his authority that he's given me to rule, to reign, and to lead. So to expand on that definition that I gave you guys a second ago, it would go something like this. So we were created to be an incarnational in the flesh, glorifying expression of the nature and character of God. Now where it keeps going, because we have authority too, not just in his image, but we also have his authority, the king and ruler of the universe who commands you to rule over everything that he has created. Here's a key in a way that magnifies him. All right, you may be hearing all this and go, make it simple for me. Let me make that simple for you. I'll do the best I can, okay? Your call, creator's original intent in your life. Again, this is what, if, if our step one is surrender, we gotta know the, who, the God we're surrendering to and what his original intent and even creating us to have a life worth building in the first place is. Two words, glorify, magnify. You were created to glorify God which means to take his image, nature, character, and authority and, and, and mac show him to the world, to bring him glory by the way you live here, boots on the ground, planet earth, all right? So that's glory going to God. Glory doesn't go to you, glory doesn't go to other people. Glory goes directly to God. So we glorify him by magnifying him. Now here, let me explain what magnify looks like. So we talked about that whole thing of like, if I took the bank statement at the end, it said, and this is what God is like. People will read that and go, man, God really likes Taco Bell or Marshalls or whatever it says that's all over that thing. Or if they watched you at work and they saw all the things that you did at work. And so God, God really likes gossip. He really likes talking about people behind their back. He really likes, you know, God, God must really like having a great idea as soon as the bad idea happened. God must really like all that. See, when you do that, you're demagnifying God. 
You're making God not seem like he really is. You see, magnifying God is making God to a world looking around through our parenting, through the way we spend money, through the way we uh, do, do sexuality, through the way we uh, hold true to what's really important in life, through the way we vote, the way we act, the way we do everything in life. It's supposed to be done in a way that magnifies God. And what that means is we're supposed to do those things in our life in a way that makes people see God as he really actually is, as he truly is, as the one true God. So we glorify directly to God by magnifying him to the world. Magnifying means making him seem as he really is. So if that's the case, then goodness gracious church, we better know who he really is. Not just a made up version of him that we may have in our head, not just someone that passed down from grandmama to grandmama, grandpapa to grandpapa to us. And now we're kind of going, yeah, that's who God is. No, you better make sure that we really know who he really is. Now, I want to fast forward. So we have that original intent, okay? We're tracking there. That's the original intent. You were created to, to, to glorify God, to magnify God by imaging him forth into a world, all right? That's our original intent. Now, I want to show you where all that goes wrong and where we demagnify God. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. Paul, I love the way he did this. He took a lot of the truth that we see right there in Genesis and then he, he shows us the gap and the fall. So if you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter one. We're gonna jump down to verse 16. Romans 1, 16. It's gonna be on the screens if you don't have a Bible. Uh, Paul's writing, he says this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. Love that word. Who believes first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. He's not saying one's better than the other. He's just saying that's the order it went in. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What, what Paul is saying here, he says, I'm not gonna be ashamed of the gospel, the truth about who I am, who God is, and, and the realities of this world. And again, we can think the gospel is just for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that everybody who loved him, believed in him uh, would not perish but have everlasting life. And yes, John 3, 16 is the gospel. If I was gonna put it in one verse, that's probably still the one I would pick, but it is so much more than that. When he's talking about the gospel, he's talking about God's whole big redemptive story that God could create an Adam and Eve, our forefathers, our foremother. He could create them in a garden and say, I want you to know how much I love you, to know how much I care for you. I created you in my image. Now go and image forth me to a world in a way that magnifies and glorifies me. They fell, they were broken, they messed up. Prophet after priest, prophet after priest, prophet after priest, tried to come and make things right, tried to get God's people to turn, to repent, to truly see him as a father. And it never worked. So that father had to send his son down into this broken, messed up, jacked up world, not as someone to represent God, but as God himself, to be God with us. And that God with us gave his life for us so that by faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, we could actually have life in him. That's the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of this. And the only way to be righteous, to deemed as one now right with God is by believing in that gospel and surrendering my life to that very gospel. He goes on in that passage, verse 18. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their weakness, wickedness. Now, again, some of us, we can hear that word and we hit that wrath of God part. I'm like, ooh, that sounds like that mean Old Testament God. I don't like that God, that wrathful God. Well, let me tell you, friend, you want a God who has some wrath because that, that, that wrath of God actually proves some love of God. 
If you hear a story about somebody coming in and raping and molesting my family as they come into my house and I sit by and twiddle my thumbs, I'm not a loving father, I'm not a loving husband. When my bride and my children are taken advantage of. And so when God's people who are created in his image, given the authority of him, then take advantage of his children and his bride, a loving God will be wrathful. A hateful God will sit idly by. So trust me, don't let a wrathful God draw you away. Know that it is only by love that there is wrath. And so he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness, all wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, again, this is where we think when I do something bad or when somebody does something bad, it's just me just going and doing something bad. But look at what Paul says. Anytime I'm turning away, what I'm doing is I am, key word there, suppressing the truth. It's as if the truth of, of God, we're, we're in the pool together. And in order for me to go do my wrong thing, I've got to take the truth of God's head and put it underwater and say, I'm gonna drown you out of my life so that I can go do with my life what I wanna do. I'm gonna suppress this truth. I'm gonna hold it underwater so that it loses its, its life in my life so I can do what I want with my life. Paul continues on. Verse 19, he says, since, this is, this is where he's, he tells us why this is happening. Since, what may be known about God is plain to them. And the them is obviously the people who are reading out there, the church in Rome, the people that Paul's referring to, but we are also in the them, guys. This is not just something in context. It's not just something that, they, oh, that's what well, they, they struggle with that. No, we, this is, this is Paul describing the human condition that you and I suffer with right now in this room, in this, wherever you're watching online. We are the them. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Four, and this is, he's a what in the world? I, I didn't know everything about God. Well, Paul keeps going. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, what he means by that is the things about God that matter most, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All right. This is big. What he's saying here, again, let me pack this a little bit because this is where some sparks should fly. You should have some questions. You should maybe pull me aside afterwards because this is, this is some big stuff here. What, what God is saying here is that from the very beginning of time, there is no one who has ever existed, exists now or will exist who regardless of if they've ever sat in a church or sat in a pew somewhere and had somebody walk through the five points of Calvinism or run them through the Romans road or walk through and talk through all these things about the gospel and show them the things in the passage, regardless if they ever find themselves in a pew, regardless if a missionary ever comes to their jungle, God has created within the heart, mind, and soul of every human being that has ever existed and will exist enough to hold them accountable. That's what that verse says. Now we can go get all up in hypotheticals and go, well, how can he, you know, what about the guy in the tribe? Let's, let's not get all hung up in hypotheticals. You know, you know right now. You've, you've done the wrong thing and felt it. You, you've known some truth. And, and that's what we, we got to camp on. Like you can't take responsibility or everything else for what somebody else is doing. God's word says it's true. And I'm going to just believe it, that, that he's put it in the heart of everybody through what he's put in this world to show that there is a God, that he is real enough so that he could hold them accountable. So he keeps going in verse 21. 
For although they, and again, we are they, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. Again, this is, I know God, I know I've been created in your image. I know that you've given me your authority. It's saying, I know that, but they neither glorified him as God, which is surrender, nor gave thanks to him. Again, aspect of surrender. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, verse 23, 22 and 23, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. If there's ever a January 2022 verse, that's it. It's no coincidence that it has a 22 in it. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24. Therefore, here's what God does in response. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful desires. The God they got was the God they wanted. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Key word here, underline this. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. This, this passage is saying here, is it, again, original intent, you're creating God's image. You're created with his authority, with his nature, with his character. And you're created to do that in a way that glorifies and magnifies him to an onlooking world so that they see who he really is. But instead, we take all the things that says, okay, I'm created to image and glorify you. This is the life that you've came to give. I'm gonna to surrender to your rule and reign in my life. We instead go, I hear the God you are, but I'd rather be my own. I'd rather do it my way. I'd rather eat from that tree. I'd rather text them. I'd rather spin this way. I'd rather give this way. I'd rather talk this way, eat this way, drink this way. I'd rather do it this way. See, what he's saying here is when we do that, we exchange the truth about who God is for a lie. Now, again, you can hear that and go, oh, that's tough. But I want you to understand the fullness of how tough that really is and how bad that really is. When I exchange the truth about what God says is true, when I exchange the truth of God for a lie, what most people do is then they call that thing a life. And it is not life because there is only one true way of life. And that's the whole, you go back through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says, this is what a with God life looks like. This is what real life looks like. And it's only found, it's only found in him. So the question becomes, okay, man, am I really believing? Now, I want, the, I want this word to impress down in on your heart. I want this, you to come back through this as we go through this whole series. The one true God. Because, well, my God would just want me to fill in the blank. Well, my God and your God and my God and your God. And no, there's one true God, friends. One true God. And he will not be mocked. He will not be reinvented. He will not twist and bend and conform into your will. See, what happens is so many times we as people creating the image of God say, I don't like what this God who created me in his image and his likeness with his authority would call me to do. And then we say, I will reinvent and I will create God in my image let him sprinkle some Jesus stuff on what I want to do so I feel good about it. And that's not how it works. And unfortunately, it's getting worse. Like our world is getting worse because men and women 
suppressing the truth of God, denying the one true God and living life of lie, we are capable of more evil than we ever imagined. So what I wanna do um, is I wanna take a second and, and I don't usually do this, but sometimes from time to time, it's good to lean back into this just to remind ourselves of where we are, who we are. This is not MCC stance on something. This is not Trent stance on something. This is scripture stance on something. And so what I wanna do, because we live in a world where I think one of Satan's greatest enemies and strategies and the gods we would reinvent around what God would say is truth. I think from time to time, it is, it is really strategic for us to come and lean into some of the primary lies where the truth is really under attack about who God is as the one true God. And there's, there's some areas where he is under attack, where his truth is under attack, where what he says is true about our lives is under attack. I wanna to talk to you about some of those today, where he's being reinvented, where he is being reimagined and reshaped. First one is in marriage. See, if, if we read the Bible, then what we understand about God's word is that God defined marriage. He didn't make marriage as this thing that would be for us to, when, when God talks about how he loves the church, he's not going, oh, well, let me think about what it's like. Oh, it's kind of like marriage. No, God's going, the way I love the church is marriage. And marriage is the copy and how I love the church is the real thing. And marriage is a representation of that. And because God invented it and God defined it and its origin is from God, then that means that God defines marriage regardless of what some man-made wisdom or Supreme Court ruled. And God will never be on board with same-sex marriage or flippant divorce because marriage was made to reflect God as he is completely. That's why God made us. That's why God made us male and female. And then marriage, he joins us together by the power of the Holy Spirit to reflect the Trinity, to reflect who he is, what he's like. So he's never gonna get on board with any version of marriage that doesn't agree with who he is and that reflects him properly. And if we say he does, then we've created God in our own image. We've redefined him and made him something else. Now you may come and say, well, Trent, you can't help who people love. No, I can't. I can't. But write this down. God is love. Love is not God. And that's, 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 again, one of the primary false gospels that's finest way in our church. And again, and again, I'm not talking about like hippie stuff that's way out on the West Coast, guys. I'm talking about like churches in our city, like mainline like denominations. That's like, no, this is cool now. Not, not like it, we feel this way. We can't change how people feel. But listen, that line of thinking doesn't work the other way around. Like if you would just go, hey, um, you just love who you love. But it, Okay, well, if that's the feeling and the feeling is true, well, then you would never just say, well, I just hate who I hate too. It doesn't work like that. Well, I'm just, I can't help who I hate, guys. No, if that's the way I live my life, I would be fired for being a racist. I hate who I hate, I can't help it. No, we snuff out racism. We wanna end racism, we're anti-racist. And so we, we, we've got to, be a, we got to be a people who go, what has God really said is true? Now, again, come to something like this, it's hard and I, I, don't, I don't want to come down judgmental, pounding God's word or anything else because here's what, here's what I know and I really want you to see this. Feelings are hard. And, I, and I, whether they're gay feelings or they're straight feelings, feelings are, are, are powerful. And I'm not denying the fact that someone can feel a certain way. 
But what I am saying is that every person under the sound of my voice has the same power that raised Christ from the grave available to them so that they can decide, are they gonna act or not act on how they feel? But again, like I said, that doesn't sound fun and that doesn't seem fair. And so some Christians, some churches, and again, some entire denominations just change God. So now we can do what we want. And again, uh, again, going all all the hot topic things here, God created two genders, just two. And anything that pursues something else is a result of brokenness. And hear me on this, is a result of a broken and sinful world. And anything or anytime we pursue something else, we reject God himself and reinvent a false one that accommodates what we feel and want to be true. And what we say and what we do, we're maybe saying, hey, we're doing this because we love people. But the worst thing you can do, the most hateful thing you can do to God or to that other person is to say that their sin is okay. To just say, continue to walk towards that. I want you to feel good. See, that's not love. Love isn't doing what makes somebody feel good. Love is doing what's right. Love is doing what's actually best. And God's not, God, look, listen, God is not going to be okay with all the things that we became okay with. I think he's also gonna hold us accountable for those. So let's keep going. Another one where truth is under attack, where even people in my own role, as pastors, preachers, reverends, bishops, whatever you wanna call us, need to know this, regardless of whatever you hear from a pulpit, God will never get on board with abortion as birth control. That ship has not sailed. And contrary to what a pastor or reverend or bishop or anybody else who runs for office would say, God will not and is never okay with it. It's still the murder of an innocent life and therefore God will never get on board with the murder of an innocent life. So in order for God to be okay with abortion on demand, you have to reinvent God. And our God will not be reinvented. He will not be mocked. Now, Please, please don't put words in my mouth here or words in God's mouth for the person confused on their identity. I want this place to be a place where they can come in and find the truth of God. For the person confused about their feelings and emotion and attractions, I want this to be a place where where we don't go, we hate you because of that and God doesn't hate you because of that. The reality is for all of us, whether it's um, the sin of of fibbing some on our taxes as they get ready to come up or the sin of going and saying, I'm going to act out on my attraction to someone of the same gender, all of those things in the eyes of God are still equally damnable, equally disgusting, equally offensive to him. None of those, there's not some scale, the foot is level at the foot of the cross. And so he says, they're, they're all here, uh, but I've come so that people could have life in me. And regardless of the truth that you're suppressing is that you're not supposed to lie on your taxes. The truth that you're suppressing that I'm not supposed to gossip about that person at work or the truth that I'm suppressing is that I'm actually a male. Regardless of whatever truth that you're suppressing, you're suppressing the truth and reinventing a God who is true to you. And that's the problem. So the, the foundation has to, has to be, is God God or have I invented the one that I like? Now, Again, off all those things, because some of you hear those and go, yeah, I vote that way. Yeah, I think that way. I've always felt that way about marriage. I've always felt that way about gender. I've always felt that way about abortion, blah, blah, blah. Hear me. The main thing that people in the church in these pews struggle with is probably way bigger of an issue than any of those issues. And it's that we want a God to be our savior without wanting one to also be our Lord. And, and, and this is where it comes down to. It, it, you, can, you cannot have one without the other. 
to, to put it in, in ways that maybe you can understand. You cannot accept Jesus as your savior without surrendering. And this is where it all goes back. Now we're getting into some of that foundational stuff. How do I build my life? I can't just accept you as a Lord or accept you as savior without surrendering then to you as my Lord so that you reign, that you rule, that you are the one who is over my life. I'm surrendering it all to you. You have the authority, you reign, you rule. And I do whatever I do in my life It's not because I've reinvented some new version of you that gets to do what I wanna do. It's because I have actually surrendered to what your word says is true. To the life you laid out in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And again, if you are like, what are we talking about there? Go back and if you don't know what the life Jesus is talking about, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he lays it all out. There's no other better place I could ever send you or take you. Go there. So men in the room, talk to you guys for a second. You know why we, uh, why we struggle with our identity, with confidence, with, with our own shame and insecurity, and we have so many failed relationships and adultery and pornography is rampant among men inside and outside the church. Do you wanna know why? We wanna have a God who is our savior, but we don't want to bend our knee to him and surrender to him as king. And friends, fellas, listen to me. You will never understand the life that the King of Kings comes to offer you as a king to rule and reign here on earth until you bow a knee, until you surrender. And, and, and that's, that's the reason why most of our house are not stormproof right now. That's the reason why I even wonder sometimes if my own house is stormproof right now because I have so many times why I'm an obstinate son who refuses to bend his knee and bow to a king, a true king. So friends, I wanna invite you into something, something different, something more. Fellas, I, I, don't, I don't think we have a necessarily a better or a more worthy or a different, or, or uh, it is different, but I don't think it's better or more worthy calling than our female counterparts have. But I do think that, that there is a special time in the, in the church where men need to rise up. And I think we're in the midst of one of those times. And so I'm gonna invite the men of this church, not this coming Tuesday, but next Tuesday after that, uh, for the next four Tuesdays. Again, not starting this, this coming Tuesday, but after next Sunday, again, I'll, re, I'll mention it again. But for those Tuesdays in a row, four of them in a row, we're gonna gather together, probably down in the well from 6.30 to 7.30 to go unpack and take this deeper. Fellas, because when we start talking about building on solid ground, when I start talking about obedience, when I start talking about love, when I start talking about what it really looks like to defend, there's some things that I have to say specifically to you that I would not say in a room in a context like this. There's some things I'm gonna talk about sexual brokenness and sexual recovery when we get into love that I refuse to talk about in a room where there might be a 14 year old girl, but you've got to hear it. So these, these gatherings, they're not gonna be anything fancy. They're, Tim Tebow's not coming in. It's not gonna be like a men's, men's breakfast, like nothing like that. It's probably not even gonna be food. It's whatever caffeine you bring in, the Bible and us getting together to sharpen each other. That's what's gonna be there. No production, none of that fun stuff that maybe is attractional, just God's word just us diving into his truth. And so some of you are sitting there and you're going like, okay, like, <clears throat> man, I can't do that. I know I gotta be at work. I'm gonna challenge you. I'm gonna push on that a little bit, fellas. Okay. Do this. You got a boss or a supervisor or whatever manager you wanna call it. I would be willing to bet before you just write them off and say, they ain't gonna let me be there. Go in and tell them what you want. The time. Go tell them why you need to be 30, 45 minutes late. Say, listen, boss, supervisor, male, female, whatever, uh, ma'am, sir. Um, my church is doing this thing and 
I really think it will help me be a better man. And I think if I'm a better man, I'll probably be a better employee too. So you have my word that at the end of these four weeks, if, if you don't see me being a better employee, um, I'll lose a vacation day. I, whatever you, you, you can determine the consequences. But if you're okay with it, I'd love to be late for the next four Tuesdays in a row. So I can be a better man for my family and also think to a better man here at work. If you have a boss, a boss or manager, supervisor worth their salt, they'll let you come. And I hope you're there. Ladies, mornings, 6.30 a.m. So, so ladies, I, I want to talk to you for a second. Um, I got to be careful here because I'm not one of you beautiful, majestic, mysterious creatures. But if I had to guess, there are times when you struggle with your worth and your value. I think there are probably some times where you struggle with some guilt and some shame. And I think a lot of those times are probably if I had to go back and listen to some of the stories that I've listened to and, and even process through some of the even people in my own family, in my own house, a lot of that probably has to do with some of the times in your life where you gave too much of yourself away. It was too much of your heart, too much of your mind, too much of your body. Now we could come in and we could, we could easily, I know you could, and, and, and sometimes there may be some places where there is some blame needed. We could easily blame that on men. But at the end of the day, it may be possible that you were looking for in a, fall, a flawed, selfish, insecure husband, father, or boyfriend, something that God could have only given you. It may be possible that that actually is what happened. Now, again, here's, what, here's what's heartbreaking about that. You may never, it, Satan doesn't want you to ever get to the place where you admit this, but in being overly consumed with what the father said about you, what the boyfriend said about you, what the husband, whether ex or current said about you, and being overly concerned with what your identity was in them, what you also did in there is you rejected who God was to you and his primary place as the one who is truly only given the responsibility to define you for who you really are. And that's heartbreaking to a father who gave a son so that you could have life in him. And so he says to both men and to women, will you let what my son purchased be the foundation of your life? See, because when we talk about the solid ground, what you have to understand is you in your own life with your own good deeds, your own moral excellence, your own ability to, to go without looking at pornography for five weeks in a row and feel like you kicked a habit or your own ability uh, to be able to get a man or to have kids and to have that, that dream of a life that you lust after or whatever those things may be. You can never afford that life on your own. You could never purchase the ground that could build the house on. And so without Christ, you don't have it. And so step one in surrender is surrendering to the Jesus who purchased the ground that you could build the house on in the first place. The fact that our God came and put feet on ground on planet earth. And then that God was raised up out of the ground, hung on a tree and that his blood was spilt on the ground for you and for me. That's how we come to have that foundation in him. So I wanna walk you through the last little bit of time we have the blueprint. Okay, so if we're surrendering, we're surrendering to that God, what's the blueprint for that life look like? Quickly, I'll, I'll walk you through Satan's sandy blueprint. 
This is Satan's sandy blueprint. This is, this is how to build your life on the sand where it's guaranteed to crash. And listen, this is in the world. Some of us probably even gave this advice this week. This is Satan's blueprint for how you should build your life. And I guarantee you, this is the life that will fail. First of all, it goes like this. Put it up on the screen, there we go. This is Satan's blueprint. You wanna build a house on the sand? This is what it looks like. Some of you, you're gonna be like, wow, that's my life. I need to throw this blueprint away and build a new one. First, you look in. I look inside. If I wanna build my life, well, I'm gonna look in. I'm gonna see what do I want life to be like? What should it be like? What should it look like? What should it feel like? What do I wanna do? What makes, here it is, what makes me happy? What makes me happy? What do, what do I desire? What do I feel is best. Now, we gotta pause here. I've had a lot of conversations with Gen Z, millennials, all these different things, and, and it's not really anything new that pertains to them. It's, I, I, would pro- I could probably talk to golden generation, whatever you wanna call yourself. I could talk to almost everybody. Um, you could go on the streets, you could go into churches, and you would still hear stuff like this. What's the purpose in life? Let's just be happy. You invented a God. Because here's, here's what I'm trying to say in this. If your version of do you, brew, or your version of do what feels good for you or do what's best for you or follow your heart, if that's your thing, what you have to realize, if your version of life and faith and the God you've invented, if it doesn't work for everybody, then it shouldn't work for you. And do what makes you happy doesn't work for perpetual serial rapists because that's what makes them happy. So if it doesn't work for them, it can't work for you too. We gotta find a better, better, bigger definition. And it doesn't start with look in and go, what makes me happy? So Satan's blueprint starts there, look inside. And then <laughs> it's look around and go pick and choose a bunch of people who will agree with what you think is true for you. And hell forbid you find anybody to put in your circle who disagrees with you. You cancel them fast. Boom, you're out of my life. You, you said this thing was false, you get them out. So you look around, you only get people around you who will agree with you and that's your circle, that's your new family. Disregard your church, disregard your real family, disregard anything else. I'm gonna surround myself with whatever news sources, whatever Facebook feeds, whatever YouTube channels, whatever preachers, whatever. I'm gonna surround myself with people who agree with what I wanna agree with. And then from there, we look up and then we go, well, I got what's true for me. I got my people who believe in that. Now, you know what's missing? a God who will sign off on all of it. And so we reinvent one who will do that. And that's a life that's on the sand. That's a life that's gonna fall, like Jesus said, with a big, fat crash. Now, some of you, you're seeing that image and in your mind, you're thinking of somebody who is way more sinful than, they, than, than you should be thinking of right now. Because again, remember Jesus' parable. They were, both were people who heard his word. They were both people who got in the same minivan that came to the same church to check their kids in the same place. It wasn't one sex, drug, rock and roll person who was living their life on this blueprint. He was saying, in my church, in my pews, in the places, watching online, there are gonna be people. This is gonna be where their propensity is to go, to build their house on this blueprint that says, look in, look around. And then if you get the time, look up. But God comes in, I says, he says, here's the blueprint I want you to surrender to. And it is the exact opposite. First and foremost, look up. What does God say is true? Now, what do I want to be true? What does God say is true? Which again, this goes back to this reality, guys. Maybe we actually need to get in here and see what he actually says is true from time to time, right? Because you don't know. You want somewhere to start? What does God say is true? Go read the gospel of John. 
Go look at Jesus' life. What, what does a true life of following after Christ look like? Go look at his life. That's what's true. Next, we look out from there. And again, this is when I go, okay, what does God say is true? Then I go, I look around our world and I see where what's going on in the world doesn't match up with what God says is true. Well, God says that um, religion that is pure looks after and cares for the orphans and the widows. Where are places in the world where that's not happening? I look around in my, even in my own home and I go, man, uh, my teenage daughter is, she, she's, she's struggling with identity and she spends hours on Instagram and TikTok. Um, TikTok just surpassed Google as the number one website that people spend time on. You gotta ask yourself, what, what in the world is doing that doing to my kid? What in, what in the world is that doing to the next generation? And I look around and I go, okay, well, what, what can I do about that? And then from there, I, I look up to God and go, okay, God, here's what you say is true about me and it's true about this world around me. Here's why I see this brokenness in the world. And then, and then, and only then I look into myself and I go, okay, God, uh, how have you hardwired me to be able to go meet a need like that? God, uh, for some reason, I can walk into a room full of middle schoolers and I can have fun with them. I can connect, okay? I need to be serving there. For some reason, God, I, I can just work with mechanics. And so, man, uh, God, there's probably some single moms who are struggling, who, who can't make ends meet. And, and the last thing they wanna do is go pay thousands of dollars to have some guy pull the wool over their eyes to tell them that the, the muffler cabicator is broken in their car and spend thousands of dollars. I'm just gonna go start something where I start fixing those for people. I look around and I look in and see what God has blessed me with, how he could use me. And then I go and surrender to what that God would do. And that's the life to build. One that first and foremost looks up, that looks around and then looks in and then goes and builds it. And my hope and my prayer is that for all of us, that we get ready to receive communion here in these moments, that you would realize what communion means. Like communion is definitely supposed to hearken us back to the past and what Jesus did on the cross and the fact that our sins and our past were forgiven and washed away. But, but communion also points towards the future. In communion, if you, if you, put, if you put the cross on, in a word, I, you put it as a word, in my opinion, surrender. This is Jesus surrendering so that you can have the life that he has to offer. But a few weeks ago, we said this, and I'll, I'll say it again today. The future you get and how people remember you is determined by who and what you surrender to. The way your family, your kids, what is said of you in your eulogy will be determined by who you surrender to. And so that's why I love communion. Every single week, we come back to this place where we go, God, I'm surrendering to you. And my future is gonna be defined by the fact that you have forgiven my past and you're making me new. And I'm gonna build this life in such a way on your word that can withstand the big one. Let's pray together. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your truth, how it's made evident to us in moments like these. Remind us, Lord, that there is no such thing as hard truth. It's just truth. There's no such thing as hard grace. There's just grace. And I pray that both of those things meet us in these moments, Jesus. You reveal to us the truth, God, of, of, of what we've been falsely building our life on. And you come to a place where we can surrender to you. That we remember, God, that we are man in your image. We repent of every time we've tried to recreate, reimagine you into ours. Jesus, help us. We need you, Jesus. In your name.